Good morning. Would you take God's word, turn to the book of Hosea. Book of Hosea. Very unusual story. And I want to say at the very beginning, I understand that my sermon title is not theologically correct for those that are student theology. There is no such thing as marriage made in hell. This is more of a emotive response that if you look at Hosea's situation and what he went through, it may have been described that way in terms of living conditions. It's an odd story. We have to acknowledge that it's painful to Hosea, it's painful to the kids. And while we're going to talk about this marriage this morning, we have to understand that this is not a primer on marriage, okay? It's not. So with that said, uh, I first want to say, is, is Brandon here? Where's Brandon at? There's Brandon. Last week, Brandon made a decision for Christ, right? Okay. Our responsibility is to pray for you. So you have 300 people praying around you every single day now. But uh, we didn't get the name in the bulletin. So I wanted to just kind of call that out and just celebrate with him. So that's a cool thing, Brandon. Now, I've already said that we're talking about life in the trenches, life going through difficult circumstances. That's our current series. I've already said this is not a primary marriage. Having said that, there are lessons that we can learn about marriage. For instance, Hosea's wife named Gomer. Now, I realize Gomer is not a name that we would call one of our daughters today, right? In fact, if you're like me, and I'm going to date myself, every time I hear the word Gomer, I think of Gomer Pyle. <laughs> now, the kids are saying, Gomer who? You know, just kind of Google it, and you'll find out, and, you know, some sitcom. But back in the day when Hosea married Gomer, Gomer was actually a name like maybe Isabella or Gabriella. It was a beautiful name. In fact, it means beautiful fruits. So while this seems unusual to us, that's just a cultural thing. But to illustrate, because Gomer had a tendency to have many men in her life and eventually leave the house and her kids and get caught up in a lifestyle that wasn't appropriate, we do know, according to this text, that's not healthy for her family or husband. Amen? I mean, whether it's mental, physical, or emotional adultery, what we discover in this book is it's harmful to everybody. It just really creates chaos and destruction. So while I said it's not a primary marriage, there's some lessons we can draw from that. But what we primarily see here is that this is a story, it's a live illustration of our relationship with God. Now, Israel was in a covenant relationship with God. Israel is the only nation that's ever had a covenant relationship with God. While America was founded on Christian principles, we were not founded on a covenant relationship. We are not the second Israel. So they had this covenant relationship like marriage, and there's all that analogy, and we can look at the church. The church has a covenant relationship with Jesus. We are called the bride of Christ. So this is a live illustration of two things. One, a very difficult look at ourselves. 
We will not like the picture that's painted about how we treat God and each other. And secondly, it's a dynamic look at God that we are called, according to Paul, to be imitators of. How many people growing up in elementary school had something called show and tell? Raise your hand. Okay. I hated show and tell. I'm convinced that show and tell was created for extroverts. They would bring in their dad's pen and say, look at this. I got my dad's pen to show. They would bring everything and anything. I dreaded when I had to bring something to show and tell. But think of this analogy where a kid would come and they would show an object, then tell a story. That's a prophetic role, only it's reversed. Many times God says, I want you to tell the people this, thus saith the Lord, but then I want you to show them by what I'm going to ask you to do. And the book of Hosea is a perfect tell and show story. And we see this throughout scripture. We have the written word, and then we have the living word, which is Jesus Christ. He was the word in flesh. We have faith, which is our beliefs, and we have works, which is our actions. We are to be hearers of the word, hear what is written, but also doers. So think about tell and show, and maybe this story will make a little more sense. Some of the Old Testament prophets, their lives reflected the culture of their day, but they also reflected God's view of the day. So understand that this story, as as it is when we get into it, it's just not a thus saith the Lord. God asked Hosea to do something very unusual to communicate what God was sensing in his covenant relationship with Israel. That's why there's crazy stories in the Old Testament. I mean, if you read Ezekiel, we find him out sitting without any clothes in the public square in the middle of town in a pile of ashes. Just not for days or weeks, but for months and years. That was not a statement on how Christians ought to dress in public. It was an illustration, kind of shock and awe, you might say, to get the attention of Israel and God saying, listen, you're like the emperor's new clothes. You got nothing on. You're dirty. You're sitting in ashes. You're naked. I mean, but you know, they didn't get it. They just kind of passed Ezekiel every day. And God was saying, you think you look good, but you're destitute and you're naked and you're just not where you ought to be. So we have the book of Hosea, and we have a marriage. And if you're unfamiliar with the story, the marriage that Hosea is called into, he's called to marry a prostitute. Now, one of the common analogies that God uses of Israel in this covenant relationship throughout the Testament is he talks about how they prostituted themselves with other gods or they committed adultery or they committed idolatry. And that's where this language comes from. Now, one of the contemporaries was Jeremiah. And let's just establish the context of what God is speaking. And listen to these words. And then I'm going to put a verse up at the very end of this that you can follow with me. But here's what Jeremiah said that God says. In 31 verse 3, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've drawn you with loving kindness. That's God's position. God says, listen, I'm loving you. I'm pouring my love out to you. I'm doing all this stuff for you. 
But what is the condition of Israel? In Jeremiah chapter 2, here's what he says. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Did you catch that phrase? You, you follow worthless idols, you become what? Worthless. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels, no one lives? And, of course, the illusion there is, you know, I took you to the promised land, and you're choosing to live in the desert. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. So the image there is, like a church where the preachers don't know personally him and they don't preach his word and they rebel against his ideas. The prophets prophesied by Baal following worthless idols. And that's a key thought when we get into what we're going to get into in a moment. They not only would talk about what God says, they would also talk about what Baal says. They talk about what Asherah says. In other words, it's kind of this, okay, we're all one big faith anyway. There's just many ways to God. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. And the word glory there is the glory of God. And it brings us right back to Romans 1, which Paul talks about how we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man. And then through that passage, it says God gave them over, which means he let them experience the consequence of their choices. He talks about impure desires of their heart. They exchanged truth for lies. They dishonored their bodies. They dishonored their passions. They debased their minds. They couldn't think clearly. But here's the last phrase of that. And tell me if you don't see any parallels. Paul writes, though they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And of course, the word do and practice there are one of the same. It means continually do something over and over and over and over and over again. It's a defiant action against a righteous God. It doesn't talk about us that when we sin, because we all sin. But it's talking about an unrepentant, an unforgiving heart, mind, and life saying, you know what? I can do what I want, period. Back to Jeremiah. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror. I mean, that's what God's saying to these people. You should just be in horror about what you're doing. But then he writes these words. Put it on the screen. Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Look at the imagery here. We trade off living, pure, clean, healthy water for something that we put in the ground in a concrete bin that leaks. So how are you feeling this morning? (laughs) How many people are waiting for the sun to come out? (laughs) How do you view life? 
How do you view God? How do you view other people? I mean, Jeremiah and Hosea in their times were saying that they lived in a culture that had taken over the minds and hearts of Israel. And we have to ask the same question for ourselves. Have our consumer attitudes and emotions, have they driven us instead of Christ? Have we become so self-absorbed and cynical and discontent and bored that we have become religious people instead of lovers of God? Now, I want to say that last phrase again because there's a stark difference between the two. Have we become religious people instead of lovers of God? The name Hosea means love. It's talking about the love of God. And this is a love story, a painful love story. So let's begin in chapter 1, verse 1, just to kind of set the stage. It says, the word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Berai, the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, so there's the written word. He said, listen, people, I'm going to tell you some things. After he told those things, here's the illustration. Go take yourself a wife of whoredom. Have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And that's really what we looked at in Jeremiah. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for just in a little while I'll punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I'll put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. That's not a very nice name, is it? <laughs> On that day, I'll break down, I'll break the, the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And there's a whole lot of history behind Jezreel we won't get into this morning. But it wasn't a very nice place. Verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Again, not a very nice name, is it? I got a granddaughter named Mercy. I like that a lot better than no mercy. In verse 7, I'll have mercy on the house of Judah. I'll save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword or war or horses or horsemen. When she'd weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I'm not your God. I mean, imagine if you are sitting in your religious service and the prophet of the Lord says, God says, you're not my people anymore. How would you feel? In verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the seed. He reaffirms his covenant. He's not going to destroy them, which cannot be measured or numbered. And the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. So in the midst of this kind of down news, he lets them know, number one, I'm still faithful to my covenant. And number two, you will return to me. So this is a visible life lesson of the spiritual condition of Israel. They were adulterers. And God was faithful. Now, let's go back to the story a bit because it's still, I mean, I don't know if you find it odd, 
for a prophet of the Lord to marry a prostitute just to illustrate the condition of Israel. Did some research previously and and this week, and there's a very high chance that Gomer was what they called a temple prostitute. She worked for another religion. It'd be like, here's Christianity, over here's Muslim. Back in the day with Baal and Asherah poles and everything else, there was a lot of women involved in temple worship that really were prostitutes. The men would come in, give their money, they would have their sexual encounter, and that was part of the religious draw. According to Hosea, Gomer evidently was quite attractive. To use the slang, they would have called her a hottie. So God told Hosea to marry this woman. And you can almost speculate at this point that it didn't even cause a ripple. That the infiltration we talk about in Jeremiah of idol culture, that the amalgamation of all these other Baal and Asherahs and how they mixed and blend everything together, it was so normalized that people in Israel probably looked at this as the politically correct thing to do. Wow, Hosea is leading the way because we're all getting together, we're all in the same boat. Some may have thought that Hosea was a pretty lucky guy because, hey, take a look at Gomer. They had three kids. Now, do you see any parallels between Israel, God, Hosea, and their day and our day? We expect culture around us to push the limits. I mean, that's nothing new. In every generation, there is some limit that is pushed. But the question is, how can we as followers of Jesus remain sane and faithful? I use the word sane to keep a biblical worldview. How do we become like Jesus, full of grace and truth? How do we navigate this cultural pushing its political correctness in ways that we know are not healthy for them or us or our country? faithful because we got to remain true to Christ. And yet, we got to love those who Christ died for. And Christ died for who? He died for sinners. He died for people who violated the nature of God, who brought harm to themselves and harm to other people. So that's the question we have to ask, and that's the parallel that I see here. But let's go back to the story. Let me kind of summarize it and Maybe fill a few pieces into the story that are part of the speculation, but with human nature, I think we can see this happening. Gomer was very popular, and she attracted wealthy men. And she spent more and more time away from home. Eventually, she actually left home, moved in with some of these wealthy men because they had more stuff, and life was good. And life was great except one day, A new face comes to town. And she was younger, and she was prettier. And as she began to be set aside for the new face, there was guilt and shame and loneliness, and the clientele became the cheap crowd until there was no one. She was too old, and she was too used. 
Her shame had ruled out her going home because everybody knew what Hosea put up with. And there was a lot of people that were judge, jury, and executioner in that whole realm. And so Gomer had two choices and only two choices. One, she could kill herself, take her life. And two, she could sell herself as a slave. That's how the story is being played out. Now, in Hosea chapter 2, you can read it sometime. I'm just going to briefly go down through this. We have the written part now, okay? So imagine the scene. She's away. Life's terrible. She has two choices. Here's what God tells Israel. And here's a quick outline on the screen. The written part, God says, listen, I'm going to promise you six things. And they're I will statements. He says, I will allure you, which means he's going to go after them. He's going to pursue them. He is going to date them again. He says, I will give. And all the stuff that was taken away from the promised land, he's going to give back to them. He's going to restore that. He says, I'll remove and I'll abolish. He's going to take down the idols. Because God is a jealous God. He's an exclusive lover. You can't just mix everybody and anybody. No, we're, we're going to get back to the way it should be. You know, one on one. There is only one God. He says, I will betroth, which means I'm going to renew our vows. I'm going to renew our vows. I will answer, which means we're going to sit down. We're going to talk again. We haven't talked for a long time. And I will sow. And that's the idea that, again, they're going to multiply and they're going to spread throughout the world. They're going to be fruitful. And you look at that and say, wow, what a God. These are the promises he is making and reminding Israel of. So we have a really bad scene over here. Hosea being a single dad, raising three kids on his own. We have Gomer who has literally destroyed her life. She now has nobody. She's out on the streets. Two choices, kill myself or sell myself as a slave. And God comes along with this word. That's the written word. Now here is the show part of it. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. So after Hosea gets to preach this message, the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. The word cakes of raisin is a play on Gomer's name. Okay, that's where that comes from. So, Hosea, nice word. I'm going to do this. Now, I want you to show my love. Have you ever noticed that God patiently waits for us to get to the bottom of our own destructive ways before he steps in? Have you ever noticed that? Some likes, sometimes we just aren't quite ready to listen. You know, the lesson here, I think, is that so often we try to reduce and fix people according to how we want them to be fixed instead of hearing their stories, taking the time to walk in truth and grace with them. At this point, most people have made judgments about Gomer's story and Hosea's story. 
And no one sat down and listened to what God's trying to illustrate. Now, here's the scene. And again, I'm kind of filling some details in because, well, it helps fill the story, but I'm filling them based upon human nature. We find her in the book on the auction block. She decides not to take her life, but she decides to sell herself as a slave. Now, you can imagine when she steps up. We know the only people that owned slaves were wealthy people, and most of the wealthy men probably have already known Gomer in her younger years. And so when she steps up, you can only imagine the shouts and the ridicule. Some man may cry out, I've already spent too much money on her, and laughter and ridicule. And what's frustrating about these kind of scenes is they didn't even realize their own hypocrisy. They, in part, were the ones who made her in their image. And they were looking at themselves and didn't even realize it. Self-deception had blinded them. You can blame it on the money. You can blame it on the pride. You can blame it on whatever. But they couldn't realize that they were just like her. So she stands there. Her head hung. No one could see the tears. The auctioneer steps up. Someone shouts, I'll give a dollar. Of course, that's a humiliating price. And the onlookers think, well, you know, she deserves this. Look at what she did to Hosea. I can't believe he didn't divorce her a long time ago. He stayed at home. He raised the kids. People watching were judge, jury, executioner. And while all this murmuring's going on and mocking, there's a voice that shouts out from the back. $50,000. Auctioneer goes once, twice, gone. Because that was an outrageous sum. Of course, murmurs quickly shift to who is the fool that paid $50,000? The best slaves only bring $25,000. What kind of person, what kind of insane person would pay double for her? But the crowd went from mocking to a silent hush. They couldn't believe their eyes. As the crowd parted, as the man walked forward, it was Hosea. He already owned her by law. They watch him pay the auctioneer. And then he does something that the crowd could not understand. He walks over. He holds out his hand and offers her to come home as his wife. And that's where the story ends. She has a choice when she thought she had no choices. You know, we sing of the great, great love of God. And we sang of it this morning in many beautiful ways. But I have to think about how we, like Israel, mock it then in our relationships because we choose to believe the false advertising of the idols of our day. 
Back in 1979, Christopher Lash, a secular sociologist, talked about the culture of narcissism. Here's what he says. Follow this quote. He goes, advertising now manufactures a product of its own, the consumer. Perpetually unsatisfied, restless, anxious, and bored. It educates the masses into an unappeasable appetite, not only for goods, but for new experiences and personal fulfillment. Most of what he predicts was true. Only it's escalated. Now, when it talks about secular culture outside of God's kingdom, we expect this kind of behavior. But how has it infiltrated the rank and file of Christians? How have we bought into Christian consumerism rather than heart transformation? How have we bought into that it's really all about us instead of a you first repentance and faith, admitting our sin and letting Christ transform our hearts, kind of obedience? You know, Paul says, have this attitude which Christ Jesus had. And I have to ask myself the question, are we seeking to have the mind of Christ or are we seeking personal satisfaction? Are we seeking to follow Christ or are we seeking personal happiness, personal fulfillment, personal, and again, the interpretation is up to us. Are we living with the illusion that we know better than God? Are we the people standing along the parade of the emperor's new clothes applauding because we, out of fear, don't want to, to seem like we're unworthy because we can't see the clothes until a little boy shouts out the obvious? When we live the illusion that we know better, we pull the fruit off the tree because we believe the lies of Satan. And we think it's good for us, but it's killing us. And we live in bondage. And we indebt ourselves to the idols that we pursue. And we covet and we never have enough. Here's a principle I want us to think about this morning. You seek the things you crave, and the cravings will only grow stronger and deeper. You seek the things you crave, and the cravings will only grow stronger and deeper. Now, we we know how that makes sense with coveting, with discontent, with lust, with drugs, with alcohol, anything like that. We see how that works. But what we have to understand is that's the basic understanding of discipleship. If we crave Jesus Christ, if we pursue him with a holy love, if he is the focus, that will only grow deeper and stronger. See, the prince of this world lies to us. He deceives us into thinking there's these partial truths over here, and we become so indoctrinated that we think that we think that we will never be fulfilled or happy until we get our circumstances the way we think they should be. But life is not defined by circumstances. Life is defined by who we are. The psalmist puts it this way. 
As a running deer thirsts for water, so my soul thirsts for you. Jesus said, blessed are you if you hunger and thirst, if you crave for me and my righteousness. Why? Because when you seek what you crave, you grow stronger and deeper. We are wired that way. We are created that way. We become the pursuit of our passions. And that's why in the very beginning I said, we can choose to be religious people or we can choose to be lovers of God. Now let me say two things and then we're going to wrap this up. First is this, you're alive. (laughs) Get over it. Okay, you're alive. If you're here, if you're breathing, God has some incredible activity. He loves you with an everlasting love. He invites you into relationship. He has bought, he has redeemed you. He's given an incredible amount of price paid for your sin. And he offers you to come off the auction block as a slave to your past into a relationship that there is a fellowship of people around his table. He wants you to come home as a full-fledged wife, not as a slave. But our problem is we convince ourselves of success according to this world. And so we sit around saying, well, what good can I do? And that breaks God's heart because if you're alive, get over it. Because if you're alive, you need to get into it. That's my second point. And by get into it, make of your most of your life together. You don't have to settle for mediocrity. Engage God each other. Wake up every day. It's an opportunity to blast someone. You're here to live for his glory. And you can be content, satisfied, fulfilled. You are not defined by your past unless you cling to it like a lost love. Some of you need to let go of the old boyfriend and girlfriends, okay? God created you for his son. And he wants the best. Paul says, be imitators of God in Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, and note the next phrase, as dearly loved children. And he says, I want you to live a life of love. Put that verse on the screen. I want you to live a life. See that? You are dearly loved children. Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He loved us while we're yet sinners. And we do the same. We do the same to people outside of the kingdom, and we do the same to people that are inside the kingdom. And we cannot selfishly want to take what we are unwilling to give to others. But the time is now to live an everlasting love of Jesus. Here's how we're going to close. I'm going to ask Joelle to come up. She's going to sing a song for us. She's somewhere here. Everybody's coming up. I want you to pay attention to these words. I want you to listen. I want you to reflect upon your own relationship with Christ. I want you to to understand that he wants to marry you, okay? That's the whole analogy. Whatever benefit you want to take home about your marriage, that's great. But right now, I really want to focus on you and him. No matter where you're at. And, And after she's finished singing, I'm going to come back up and ask a question. So listen to these words and allow God's spirit to speak to you.